I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have have had victory over the evil one. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who uh, confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you receive from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as he has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please do keep that open. My name's Dan, if I haven't met you before. That's my great privilege to lead us through God's word this evening. Please do pray with me as we come to this part of God's word. But once again, we really do want to thank you for your word. Thanks that you speak to us because you want, to, you want us to know you. God, we do pray now that as we gather around this part of your word, um, that you'd uh, please teach us. Uh, please um, give us, um, yeah, I guess through your anointing, through your spirit, help us to see Jesus more clearly this evening. Please correct us. If we need correction, please rebuke us if we need that. Please encourage us to remain in Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine uh, there's a bunch of new uh, army recruits, and they've been gathered together, been training together, doing team building and physical training for about a month. And one day they turn up on the parade ground, and their commanding officer sort of calls them to gather around, and he gives them this kind of encouraging pep talk about who they are and their great privileges of being part of this battalion or whatever it is. And they're a bit confused about what's going on, these recruits, until... uh, the officer calls them down into this war bunker and he's got this serious look on his face and says, war's broken out. It's, it's action time. And he proceeds to give them this war briefing about who the enemy is, uh, what the, how the, kind of the layout of the battle zone and, and how they're going to fight this enemy. And that's more or less where we're at tonight with 1 John. 
We've been hearing for the last two weeks about kind of training, I guess, if you will, about uh, what we're rooted in as Christian people, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, But this week, the recruits get into the war zone. And verses 12 to 14, John gives them this stirring pep talk. And verses 15 to 19, he introduces them to the war and two particular enemies. And then from verse uh, 20 onwards, he tells them how to fight the battle. We're going to get to the encouraging pep talk in just a moment. uh, But before we do, I want to concentrate on this battle first. Some of you might be uh, sitting here as um, young Christians or non-Christians and you're thinking, battle? You're trying to make something boring sound quite interesting, aren't you? Others of you have been following Jesus for quite a while and you're thinking, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Because following Jesus is a battle. A A flourishing Christian is rooted in truth and seeking to grow in love. But we face a battle on both those fronts. The enemy wants to distort the truth and, and derail our love. And so John talks about both those aspects of the war. He begins in verses 15 to 17 by telling us where the battle is taking place. It's taking place in a place called the world. It's a battle for love. So would you read with me from verse 15? Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now these verses kind of hit like a brick. We've been having this lovely stuff for the last chapter and a half, and all of a sudden we get the first command in the letter, and it's very clear. Do not love the world. But I love trees and birds and a lovely sunset, don't you? So what does he mean? I think by the world, John kind of means something like the world without Jesus. It's that kind of view that's like, that says the world is everything and sort of pushes Jesus off to the side a little bit, or entirely. So what does it mean to love the world? Well, you know when you love something, you kind of expect that thing to make you happy, to make you satisfied. So I love rock climbing, strange that may sound. Um, I expect it to make me happy. I love hot, fresh bread in the morning. Doesn't it smell good? I expect it to satisfy me. When we love the world, kind of invest in it and expect the things of this world to sort of fill up our passions and desires, and we push Jesus off to the side. It's sort of... We ask the world and its, its things in the world to fill us up, even if that means kind of forgetting about Jesus a bit. John calls this uh, lusts of the flesh. When we hear that, we kind of think sex and Tim Tams, don't we? Lusts of the flesh. Uh, but he means much more than that, of course. Uh, he, he means all sorts of things, like innocuous things. Um, I think for me, one of the things is comfort. I'll give you a quick little snapshot. On Friday, which is my day off, uh, my whole family was having an afternoon nap. And so I, got, I made a cup of Earl Grey tea, grabbed a chocolate chip cookie, a good book, and sat in a chair in the sun. I just thought that was beautiful. You might think I'm very boring, but it was, it was lovely. And then my cat came to the door, started scratching, Meow! and I just lost it. <laughs> it's like, oh! 
And just in that little snapshot, it was right there, you know. I was so wanting to fill up my desire for comfort through this worldly experience that following Jesus, kind of, you know, being patient and gracious with my cat, it's just out the window. That is a tiny, tiny and ridiculous example, but isn't that what happens all day? Doesn't that happen to us all the time? When we so want that thing in the world to fill us up, following Jesus sort of drifts off to the side. Paul, uh, sorry, John also speaks of it as uh, lust of the eyes. The lusting after those things that we see but we don't yet have. When we see our friend buying that house or their third house, and we think, oh, if I just if I could get that. When we see our friend with that new boyfriend or girlfriend, when we see our friend getting the new job that perhaps we deserved, and we're, we're tempted, and it's okay to be tempted, because these things are good things, it's okay, but then we're tempted to love that thing. We're tempted to think, I need to get that thing to fill up my desires and passions, even if it means pushing Jesus off to the side a bit. He also speaks of this, these things as, um, as our pride in our lifestyle, which is kind of the flip side of lust of the eyes. It's like when you do have something and you really hope everyone notices. Do you see my new car? It's pretty nice, isn't it? Have you? Yeah. Do you see, uh, have, you met, uh, have you met Matilda, my new lady? Do you? She looks pretty nice, doesn't she? Have you seen uh, my fashionable clothes? Not actually. from rivers, I think. They both were. Anyway. And that sort of idea, pride in our lifestyle. Now, is it just me, friends, or is this, this is a daily struggle, right? This is a daily struggle to not love the world, but to follow Jesus. And so the words of verse 15 are, are, are sobering. He says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in him. That way of doing life, of just investing in the world and expecting it to deliver and pushing Jesus off to the side, that's not of the Father. If that's the kind of route you've taken, the path of life you're on, love for the Father is not in you. It's sobering, isn't it? There's a principle here. There's only room in your heart for one of those loves. Love for the world or love for the Father. Not both. They're like oil and water. They don't mix. Love for the Father or love for God. Now, I don't know you guys as well as I know 5 p.m. and Saturday night. They're my congregations. But uh, I wonder if any of you are feeling like your love for God has grown cold. It's not an uncommon experience? Has your love for God grown cold? Could this possibly be the reason? You know, you used to be so, you know, hot for Jesus. You were like on fire for him. But now the world just seems so attractive. Things like, you know, your job and what you get out of that, relationships and pastimes, they just seem to deliver so much more reliably. And so, 
You haven't exactly pushed Jesus off to the side, but you're not exactly following him either. You know, you're trying to do nothing too bad or sinful and kind of hoping that Jesus doesn't care, that you're really not on fire for him. Could this be the reason? There's only room in your heart for one love. Friends, I wonder, have you forgotten that you're in a battle? Have you made peace with the world? I was chatting with um, Tim Borman. Are you here tonight, Tim? No, he's not here. He's, I think he's gone on holidays. But Tim's in the British Army. And uh, I, I asked him last week after church, um, what's it like being a Christian in the Army? Especially he's done two tours of Af- Afghanistan. I said, is it easy to be a Christian on the front line? And he said, his response was interesting. He said, um, There's no atheists on the front line. The real battle is here. The real battle is here. Where the world is so attractive and we can almost get our fingers right around it. The real battle is here. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that you are in a battle. A battle for your love. That's not all John has to say. He talks about where the battle is, the world, but he also talks about when the battle is. And he says it's in, it's, we're in the last hour. We're in a battle uh, for truth. So look with me at verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that, that, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged uh, to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Antichrist is not a nice thing to call someone, right? I mean, it's not something your grandma calls people, is it? And if it is, you should, yeah, should tell her not to. There's, there's some bunch of people who've gone out from John's church and they're, they're teaching some other stuff. And he, he calls them antichrists. Which kind of is, I, I think it's a bit difficult in our tolerant society. Why is he so worked up about this? Look with me from verse 22. He says, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah or Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. So these Antichrists are denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John says, if you deny the Son of God, you don't have God. You've lost the Father. There is no father if there is no son. What's a a sonless father? This is serious, he says. Hence the language, antichrist. Now, now John's point here is actually that we are in the antichrist hour. We're in this last hour which stretches from Jesus' resurrection to his return. That's our day. We should expect to see antichrists. Some of them are Relatively easy to spot. Your Mormons and JWs who believe quite different things about Jesus. But I think the ones who are more dangerous are the ones who call Jesus Christ, even Son of God, but never actually speak about what it means for him to be the Christ. It's as if it's just a last name. You know the person who says, you know, Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher. And you think, yeah, he was. 
But that's not what it means for him to be the Christ. Well, there's people who never speak about the sin that the Christ came into the world to save us from. I was watching a video this week of um, a pastor who has over 40,000 people at his church each weekend. Massive, plus those who watch on television. He talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus Christ is kind of like a life coach who's in your corner barracking for you so that you might have your best life now. I think that's lovely. But he's the king. He's the Christ. You know, the guy who came into the world to save the world from sin. Don't distort the truth. But that's the world we're in, friends. That's the time we're in. The last hour. It's going to be a battle for truth. The truth about Jesus. We're in a battle for love and a battle for truth. So let's get back to the recruits for a moment. The officer has taken them down into the war bunker. He's told them about this battle. And then one private who's kind of at the back of the room puts his hand up and says, Sir, how do we fight this battle? And the aged officer, John, turns around and, and simply says, Son, you've got to remain. Let the message you heard from the beginning remain in you. Remain in the Son, remain in the Father. The anointing that's in you, let it remain in you. Remain. I don't have to tell you um, that we are in an information-saturated age where you can find out what a thousand people think about a thousand topics with a click of a button, even if you don't care. I found out this week that the longest French fry in the world was 34 centimeters. Who cares? But you can find that stuff. You'll also find out what a thousand people think about Jesus. And some of that stuff will be weird. And some of it will be convincing. Spoken by people who seem credible and educated, wearing lab coats perhaps. And you might think to yourself, you know what? The old story I've got about Jesus just seems a bit simple. Start to feel a bit unsure. Well, you meet that old friend who used to go to church with you but then moved off to another church and, and they say that they found all these new and amazing things about Jesus and uh, quite different things. And you kind of start to feel like, you know, what you know of Jesus is quite insufficient. It's kind of like the people John was writing to. And he says to them in verse 27, you don't need anyone to teach you. You don't need anyone to teach you. All right, see you later. What are you all doing here? No, I don't think that's not the point. Um, If that was John's point, he wouldn't write a letter, and then we wouldn't know what he said. Anyway, do you know what I mean? That's not his point. His point, I think, is be confident in what you have, what you know of Jesus, the Jesus you met when you first trusted in him. You don't need something new from those people out there who've left us. You don't need them to teach you. So verse 20, look at verse 20 with me. He's just talked about the Antichrist, and then he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth and you need some extra new news, but because you do know it, because no lie comes from the truth. 
That anointing he's talking about there is the Holy Spirit. God sort of um, shows who his people are by pouring out his spirit on them, kind of like oil poured out and anointing. Through the Spirit, we actually get to know God, know him truly. We know him in a way that the world can't know. Um, We know deep in our bones, unlike the Antichrists, that Jesus is our King, our Messiah, our Christ, who's come into the world and rescued us from sin. Do you remember in um, John's Gospel where Jesus says, um, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice? It's by the Spirit we're actually learning to know the more and more the true voice of Jesus from amongst the lies. Now, it's interesting, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes when someone's praying for a preacher, they'll pray that they'd have a special anointing, uh, which is fine. But it's interesting that John says the opposite here, doesn't he? He's talking about the listeners. He's saying for all of us as Christians, that we have an anointing that we might actually understand and grasp the truth about Jesus, to actually know him. You probably also noticed, as this was being read, that the message about Jesus and the anointing are kind of intertwined. They're spoken about in just the same way. Verse 24, let the message about Christ remain in you. Verse 27, let the anointing remain in you. John's saying that the message about Jesus and the spirit of Jesus are to remain in you together. So he's saying we don't need some new, exciting, different Secret knowledge about Jesus. We need to dig into the old story of Jesus of Nazareth, the one that we've heard, the one that the Jesus we met when we became Christians. He's not saying you know don't discover anything new about Jesus. No, 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 not at all. I hope we do like dig deep into Jesus and find him more wonderful and bigger than we ever imagined. But the same Jesus, not some new, secret, strange Jesus. See, that's how we fight this battle for love, this battle for truth. That is, by the power of the Spirit, we remain. But again, we're back in the wall bunker and and this private at the back still kind of scratching his head. Sir, just remain. Is that it? Do we going to do anything? What was all the physical training about? And that's a good question, isn't it? Just remain? Seems kind of passive. Seems kind of boring, to be honest, doesn't it? Well, I think John's got a slightly different way of thinking about remaining to what we do. See, imagine for a moment, uh, some of you won't need to perhaps, that you're a project manager. And you go into the, uh, the boss's office and he gives you this kind of project plan and says, I want this project plan to remain in you. And you think, that's a bit weird. But then after a bit, you kind of, I think I kind of see what you're getting at. You don't want me to just kind of take a quick squiz at this and kind of remember a few facts. You don't even just kind of want me to roughly keep to schedule. You want me to like let this plan become my life until the project's finished. You want me to eat it and sleep it. You want it to affect everything, which sounds like a bit of a drag, doesn't it? For a project plan anyway. Or imagine it this way. Imagine you're an actor. And the director gives you your part, the script, and says, now I want this script to remain in you until the end of the filming. And we know what that means, don't we? I'm not just to to learn my lines. I'm to to kind of let this story 
be my life story for the next two months until the filming's finished or whatever. You know what I mean? I think far too often we hear the term remain in Jesus and we think, okay, so I've got to keep agreeing with the truths about Jesus. And we think, yep, I still agree with the Apostles' Creed. Okay, I'm remaining in Jesus. Tick. But I think he means something so much more, doesn't he? It's that we're let, to let the story of Jesus so remain in us that it affects everything. In other translations, it uses the word abide. May his, his word abide in us. May he abide in us. May his project for the world become our project. May his story become our life story. And what is his story? Why, that's kind of what he was getting at in his pep talk. Verses 12 to 14. Would you, would you look at that with me? I might just read verse 14 because it's a bit repetitive. And I'll add a little bit. Verse 14, he says, I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father and because you've been, uh, you have forgiveness because of the Son. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. He's saying, oh, this is who you are. Young recruits, this is who you are. As you go into the battle, you must remember that this is your story. This is who you are. Remain in it. And so he says, little children, whether that's kind of, you know, physically little children or, or spiritually mature, it doesn't really matter. But little children, what you need to know is that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus' name. You need to know that you've come to know the Father. That in the midst of this battle, this struggle, you can recline safely into the loving arms of God. Because He's your Father. He's washed you clean. You've become His child. How wonderful. Do you need to remember that? We do. We need to remain in that. That, that. That's our story. That's who we are. Fathers, you know the one who was from the beginning. How incredible is that? They know the God who is beyond and before all things. This preacher guy, F.F. F. Bruce, puts it like this. The fathers have a ripe and intimate acquaintance with the eternal God. How is that? We've got to remain in that. Every day as we go out into, into our daily lives, remain in that truth that we know the eternal God. And he says, young men, you've reclined into the safety of God's arms, but you found there's a battle there. The enemy is trying to attack you. Well, well let me tell you what you need to know. You, as you go into the battle, this is what you need to know. You have victory. You already have the victory. So remain in that. Live as a victor over sin and death. Battle it. Yes, you're in the midst of a world that wants to steal your love away. An enemy too great. But you remain in Jesus, who's won the victory. He's brought you out of, out of the darkness of this world and brought you into the light of his kingdom. He's taken you out of a world that's passing away. He's taken you out of a sinking ship and brought you to himself into his story, into his family. Now remain in that. Make that your story. 
how are we going to how are we going to remember the, the story? Because we're not going to remain in it unless we remember it. Well, we need to keep looking at the project plan. We need to keep reading the script. As quick words to husbands, we need to do this on behalf of our families. We need to fight for our family's sake and actually help our families to remain in the truth, to remember the, the lines together. And did you notice verse 24 and 25? Just starting the second sentence of verse 24. This is what it kind of all amounts to. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, if you're living out that story, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. As we receive his, his story, his truth, the message of Jesus, and live it, we are living eternal life. We're remaining in the Son and in the Father. And as we do that, our love for God grows. As we keep living out the story, our love for the author of the story grows. And remember that principle there's only room enough in your heart for love for God or love for the world. As we live out our eternal life, and love for God grows. Well, the world sort of becomes a bit less. It's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this, this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's how we fight this battle of love. And so just as we close, I want to ask you once again, has your love grown cold? Do you find it too easy to, to not just be tempted by the things of this world, but to love them? Push Jesus to the side. Or do you find yourself too easily flexible about the truth of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, can I remind you that you're in a battle? Can I encourage you to remain? To keep reminding yourself of the script, get into the Word, and then passively remain, just kind of receive this gospel, this message as, as your story, just receive it. And then actively remain, actually kind of receive it and then live it. Make it your story. Can I encourage you to do that? To remain? The Lord Jesus gave us a wonderful way of remembering um, what it is to remain. Uh, it's called communion. It's called Lord's Supper, and we're actually going to celebrate that together now. I'll invite the band to come up. They're going to play in a moment. Um, when uh, Jesus, um, uh, just the night before he was betrayed and went to the cross, he um, introduced this new way of celebrating the Passover where um, we take a bit of bread and take um, some juice or wine, and we remember his body. And his blood, his body broken, his blood shed, so that we could be part of this story, so that we could be forgiven and know victory. I just think there's a great way of remembering that we remain in him. As we actually take in his body and blood, we actually eat it. That he might remain in us and us in him.